Hello, I'm Joshua Groisberg, a history enthusiast. And I'm Jacob Friedman, founder of People's Big News. And this is Gen Zero's Talk Politics. This is where two members of the next generation of American adults talk about what's going on in the world. Since the whole world is on fire, we might as well take a crack at delivering some insightful analysis and maybe some comedy along the way. I'd like to welcome Ori Epstein, writer of the Times of Israel and Justice, Political Philosophy, and Law major at McMaster University in Ontario, Canada, to talk about the upcoming Israeli election. Ori, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So first off, uh, can you give us a brief overview of what's at stake in this uh, November election? So this election is the fifth one since 2019. Um, and if that seems like a lot, that's because it's a lot. There's been a time of political instability right now. And the main competition is to see whether former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu will regain his power as Prime Minister um, or not. And there's really three options. Either Netanyahu will be able to form government. The second option, which currently seems to be the most likely, is there's going to be a deadlock and no one will be able to form government. Or current Prime Minister Yair Lapid um, or one of his fellow center-left compatriots will be able to become Prime Minister and form a government. Now, in Israel, to form a government, you need 61 seats out of 120. And recently, that has become a very hard thing to get. And even though you only need some 51% of the vote to actually get the 61 seats you need, the way the power structure is broken down, it's divided right along the middle. So there's parties, there's there's Netanyahu's block, which people call just like the Netanyahu block. There's the current government, which people call the change government, change is in opposition to Netanyahu. And then there's the Arab parties, which used to be together called the joint list. Well, I'll give an overview about the Arab parties because they used to be four parties in one list running as one larger party called the joint list. Now, before last election, one of them broke off and joined the change government and the other three stayed together. This election, the two parties called Khadash and Tal are staying together but one other party is running alone. That is not because the other party, which is called Balad, wants to join either the change bloc or Netanyahu, but just because they have disagreements of the power structures within the party. So what usually happens is that the balance of power, when there's a problem, it either, when there's like no government, it either sits with the Arab parties, Khadash and Tal, which will probably be the case now, who do not participate in government out of principle, or it's just divided right along the middle and you can't find an agreement or there's a power struggle between the characters. We don't know what will happen until the election, but it's safe to say if Netanyahu gets less than 61 seats, he won't be able to form government. And if the change block the change block would have to get 61 seats in addition to there being another four seats or like four seats is the minimum usually of what would happen for the Khadash Tal party to be able to enter. So really they're on the left of Netanyahu. So the left needs 65 seats to continue to be in government. So Ori, um, in terms of how those, how coalitions may or may not form, 
based off the election. What do you think will be the main issues that Israeli voters will be focusing on that will determine who's able to form a government or coalition? The main issues are usually ones of identity in Israel. But the biggest issue now, and it has been for probably the past decade, is whether or not you like Netanyahu. And the answer recently has been that Israel really doesn't know if they like Netanyahu or not. And that's why there have been five elections in the past four years. And this 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 obviously being the fifth that's coming up. Obviously, you have specific factions in within Israel that tend to vote a certain way. For example, the ultra-Orthodox Haredi parties tend to vote for the parties that represent them, and Arab voters tend to vote for the parties that represent them. And there's another party that represents the interests of Russian Israelis who vote for them. So it's a lot based on what your identity is as an Israeli, as either a Jew or a Muslim or a Christian, and that really determines how you vote, and who you're going to vote for. And the other side, obviously, is whether you like Netanyahu. But to some extent, whether you like Netanyahu, part of your your like identity group has opinions generally on Netanyahu, and they're either positive or negative. So I'll briefly explain where Netanyahu's power sort of comes from. His coalition, he merges the ultra-Orthodox Haredi and the religious right. Now, it's important to note the difference between the ultra-Orthodox Haredi and the religious right. The religious right is, they're more Zionist than the Haredim, who are the ultra-Orthodox. The Haredim are basically not that big fans of Israel as a secular state, though that's changing recently. They see Israel as overly secular and are trying to make it more religious, but they don't have the same nationalist aspirations as the religious right, which is, again, more settler-oriented in that sense. So he's been able to merge those two groups with his sort of big tent Likud secular right party. And in addition to that, before 2019, where he had a long stretch in power, he also got the secular Russian right Israel Beitenu party to join him. And that's sort of where his power came from. What changed after 2019 is that there was more fights between the secular right and the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, because the secular Israel Beitenu, it's made up of a lot of, as, as I said earlier, like Russian and former Soviet Union Jews who tend to be a right, lot more secular. They aren't a fan of religious coercion. And part of this, the reason behind this is they're not a fan of the major ultra-Orthodox institutions of the rabbinate because they've been giving Russian Jews quite a bit of difficulty in certain areas that they control. Like with marriage, they have to go through, do a few cartwheels just to prove that they're Jewish more so than other groups. And that split has really weakened Netanyahu's power base. So after 2019, we had three elections and nothing really changed until there was a unity government to combat the COVID crisis, but that obviously didn't last in the long term. That was just a concession for the temporary period of time, which fell apart quickly. And then what happened in the next election is both the Likud party and the religious right fractured and broke away from Netanyahu because they saw that it wasn't working too well because there, had, there hadn't been political stability. So the religious right, a man by the name of Naftali Bennett, who was the 
prime minister for most of the time that the change government was in power. He decided to break away from Netanyahu and run on his own. Well, he was part of his bloc, but he broke away from the bloc, obviously. He always had his own party. And just people say, like, his most likely successor actually broke away from Likud. First, he primary Netanyahu. That didn't work. Then he formed his own party and ran against him. And with a combination of losing, um, his name was Gidon Saar, and he ran with the New Hope Party. With a combination of losing part of the religious right in Bennett, and part of his big tent party in Sa'ar, and um, the secular right in Israel Beitenu in Avigdor Lieberman, that eventually shifted the balance of power from Netanyahu's bloc away to the change government. And they were able to form a broad government of people who were not big fans of Netanyahu with um, those three elements of the right, as well as the center and left, and an Arab party called Ra'am, which was the first to break away from the joint list. And they basically advocated for greater funding for Arab communities, and they justified their participation in the government based on those concessions that they got, which they they did get a lot of money. So to some extent, it succeeded, even if only for a year. So that's obviously a lot to analyze. But I'm curious what your personal thoughts are on what the election would look like. I mean, I know there's a lot to speculate on, like you mentioned, but I'm curious, do you think there will be any faction that will be able to gain an outright majority or be able to build a coalition? What do you think the outcome would be? Right now, it's looking like the most likely outcome will be a sp- like an exact split down the middle where Netanyahu's block um, will have 60 seats and everyone who's not Netanyahu will have another 60 seats. So that's 50-50 split, basically. And that would likely mean that no one will be able to form a government. And while Netanyahu still will have the largest party, probably regardless, because the way in Israel, it's not by the largest party, it's by the largest group of parties. The only way to form a coalition for someone, it wouldn't be Netanyahu. It would be for someone from the center or left to find a way to convince the ultra-Orthodox actually, to join with the left and the center-left and the rest of the change government. That will be extremely complicated. Um, But the issue for the ultra-Orthodox is they're sort of running out of time because their constituency, the ultra-Orthodox, they need money. They need a lot of state subsidies for their schools, for children, and their their general way of life depends a lot on the state subsidies. And if they don't get that, then there could be more discontent among the populace. So it could be that you'll have a coalition where the left manages and the change block manages to get the ultra-Orthodox. And in that way, they've sort of broken most of the elements of Netanyahu's power base, and then they'll form power. But if they don't do that, then there's probably going to be another election. So we've talked about the polls, we've talked about how the party system works. What else yeah. should we be looking out for? Are there any voter bases? Are there any candidates? Are there any you know scandals we should be looking out for? Or anything unexpected that we should expect in the bring up to the election? It's only in a couple of weeks. Yeah. You know, we're recording in the middle of October. The election is uh, early November. So the main thing to watch is the threshold. So in Israel, you need party. You need to get three point two five percent of the vote to make it into parliament. If you get less, you get zero seats, and if you get above the threshold, you get four seats. And 
if you are below the threshold, basically, it's a lot of votes going to waste, so to speak. So there are parties that are hovering right around the threshold. The two unions of Arab parties, well, the one union of Arab parties, the Khadash Tal party um, and the Ram party are both at four seats. If they fail to meet the threshold, then that will give Netanyahu a lot more power. So the threshold is something to watch and the Arab voter turnout, which will determine if those two parties pass the threshold, is another thing to watch. The, the way the parties are situated is in a way that Netanyahu's party, the Likud, will almost certainly be the largest party. And that's because the big tent party on the right is unified in the Likud, but on the center and left is divided into the National Union, which the National Union is a merger between Benny Gantz's Blue and White Party. And um, as I mentioned earlier, Likud's former, like the former number two of Likud, Gidon Saar, who ran as the New Hope Party, now that has become, he has joined the National Union. And they're trying to envision themselves as a center party that also can get votes from the center right too. And in that way, they will become the second largest party after the party of prime minister, current prime minister, Yair Lapid's. Between those two, there's a party called Otsmayodit, which that is the far right party in Israel. Um, it's part of the religious right, but it is not like other, like Bennett's religious right party. Well, they're basically um, terrorists, right? They like are it's basically the offshoot of Goldstein, right? Brooke Goldstein. Yeah, they, they're the offshoot, not necessarily of Goldstein himself, but of a rabbinical figure named Kahana, who was very nationalist, you know, far right, quite similar, actually, to some other far right movements that you see in other countries. And that is sort of what they stand for. And their leaders, Smutrich and Ben Gvir, Ben Gvir especially, has been very provocative. You know, he's setting up his like temporary offices in like conflict flashpoints just to trigger the response and to get headlines. They know that if the more things get heated, the better they do. And the more people are disillusioned with the current parties, and I guess this is the fifth election, so people are a bit disillusioned, um, the better they will do. And the more seats they get, the more dangerous they become. And then you have the the old-time left parties, that, that's Labour and Merits. They're hovering around five seats each, um, which is very not a lot, but they both also need to pass the threshold to get in. The Haredi parties, they stay consistent usually, so there's not much to watch there. Yet it's not as much as the individual parties as the blocks. You really need to watch the blocks and watch the threshold, and from there you can see who's doing well. Well, it's, uh, it's going to be a bit of a mess, but uh, yes. you know, we'll see how it shakes out. Uh, Ori, thank you so much for coming on, explaining all this to us. I can imagine uh, our listeners are uh, very, have a lot more uh, stuff to think about as the election unfolds. Thank you so much for coming on and hope to have you back soon. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me again and wish you the best of luck. We'd like to welcome back Sam Brunner to the show. Brunner is a uh, IR major at Tufts University and is a avid watcher of the polls. And we've been talking about the elections for some time now. And now let's see what he has to say. Sam Brunner, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So off the top, what's your like near final guess for how the House and Senate are going to go? So at this point, it's pretty obvious Democrats are going to lose control of the House. I mean, it's not entirely impossible that they hold the House, but it's going to require literally absolutely everything to go right. 
So I don't have any like actual math to back this up, but I would put their chances of holding the house somewhere between five and one percent. So in other words, it would take a miracle. And what about the Senate? The Senate is definitely much more of a complete toss up. Probably last week I would have said slight advantage Democrats. At this point, I'm just like, I honestly don't know. There's far too much unknown. There's multiple Senate races that could go either way. So my guess is that we will not know who's going to win the Senate for at least, or I guess early into the morning of November 9th. My guess is we won't know for at least a day who will control the Senate. I mean, Pennsylvania, they said that they have to take at least a week or something to count all the ballots because there's a you know, conflict between the legislature and the governor about how to count the ballots because mail ballots. And we might not know that race if that's one of the key Senate races. Also, additionally, you know? Arizona takes forever to count. Nevada yes. takes forever to count. Georgia could yes. very easily go to a runoff. Honestly, it seems like the most likely scenario at this point. Mm-hmm. So it could be weeks. So a lot of those states we just mentioned, those are a lot of the key races. Are there any bellwethers to watch? Like, if this state goes one way or the other, the Senate clear. or the House? Yeah, for the Senate and also the House of it. The Senate, I don't think so, honestly. What we're really paying attention to in the Senate is four races that all have very different things all going on. Georgia has the Herschel Walker factor. Pennsylvania is just like, honestly, who knows? Because, like, it seemed like it was Fetterman's race to lose. I was always pretty skeptical of Fetterman having a pretty strong advantage. In Arizona, Mass of literally as negative charisma as a as a friend described to me but at the same time it is it is a more republican leaning environment and then honestly who even knows what's going on in nevada because nevada politics it's not really about ideas it's about how many people the unions can turn out in clark county and we just don't know if they're going to get the numbers or not to get Catherine cortez masto over the line so it's for completely independent races, I think. Whereas the House will be much more of a unified national environment, I think. And yeah, I think we've talked privately about this, about the House, and you said to me that, I think you've said that if Elaine Warrior keeps her yeah. seat, then the Democrats, or most likely the Democrats would avoid an absolute 2010, you know, or 2018 blowout. I would say that the Democrats are not going to experience a 2010 level blowout. There's no realistic scenario in which Republicans pick up 60 seats. It's, I mean, they would have to be winning seats in like major cities that have been blue for for generations and show no signs of of letting up because a lot of people don't understand this but the reason that 2010 was such a massive wave was because democrats were holding on to a lot of seats in the deeply conservative south that essentially were very much on borrowed time already and republicans finally just swept all those in 2010 that there there's just not as big of a, of a playing field this time especially once all the lines have been redrawn a lot of competitive seats in the last cycle have been redrawn into safe seats for gerrymandering purposes obviously a good example is colin allred who had a very competitive suburban Dallas seat now has a deep, deep blue seat so that they could give some of his Republican voters to other Republicans. So, but yeah, I think that the reason I mentioned Elaine Luria is because Virginia is one of the first states to close. Virginia, too, is a seat that that Biden won very narrowly. So you'd expect that in a Republican environment, Elaine Luria would probably lose pretty convincingly. I think that's the more likely scenario to happen. Her losing does not necessarily spell a blowout. Her getting crushed could potentially spell a blowout, but Republicans did put up a really strong candidate against her. That, that'll that just be voters' first taste of where things are going, in my opinion. 
And do you have any opinions about the other races, the governor's races, the secretaries of state races? Those are being very watched very closely this year. Any any notes on your part? I mean, I, I care deeply about my governor's and secretary of state's races because I think my governor's done a horrible job, even though he's likely to, to keep his job. Governor Kemp. Yeah, Governor Kemp. Sorry, I'm, I'm from Georgia. Um, our secretary of state is completely incompetent. He's done an awful job, but he's gained this quote-unquote moderate persona because of the fact that he didn't literally commit a crime in 2020. Brad Roethlisberger. Yeah. So I can't wait to vote against him. All right. I did. I submitted my ballot, but it hasn't been processed yet because of Brad Raffensperger. So care deeply about those races, even though they're not likely to, to flip to Democrats. Um, there aren't really a whole lot of governor's races that I'm personally that invested in. I think that what we're seeing with the governor's races is kind of weird this year where like they're extremely regionally specific, like Republicans seem to be surging in very blue environments like Oregon. And well, that's because, what well, was it, the founder of Nike or something is well, wanting an independent yeah. candidate? No, it's because uh, there is an independent candidate running. Um, essentially got drawn out of the state legislature as she was a Democrat and she got drawn out of the state legislature. So she was salty and ran an independent run for governor. So essentially the, the founder of Nike donated to her because the founder of Nike is a Republican and he wants... Like, the more votes the independent gets, it's going to be pulling almost entirely from the Democrat, because she's also a Democrat, really. So that's why he supported her. Um, Lee Zeldin, for some reason, seems to be surging in New York. He's not going to win. He's not even going to come no, close. Of course not. But he seems to be doing really well. Well, Sean Patrick Maloney, the uh, congressman. God, I hope he loses. But he's I'm like, so happy. But, he but he's, like the, he's indeed like the DCCC or something. He's like the house of the, you know, head of the house uh, yeah. Democrats. Like, and he's sinking all the, like, all the money that should be going to competitive races into his seat to protect himself honestly that's one of the even as for as much as a partisan hack as i am I'm, I'm endorsing his republican challenger because i want him out of the house he's incompetent he's squandered the dnc in the dccc in such an unbelievable way i i want him gone that's not since like what the 80s since like a democratic uh, election leader has been you know taken out be by like that. that's not that hasn't yeah. happened in like 30 40 years i'd love to see that there seems to be like this really weird trend where Democrats are surging in the Great Plains. They're doing, they're polling phenomenally well in South Dakota. We've had one poll of Nebraska, but that's not a race that should be close. And the one poll was close. Again, take it with the like literal biggest grain of salt possible because polling is not the best indicator of where things are going. Mm-hmm. Laura Kelly definitely seems to be holding her own in Kansas, which is another race that should be a fairly easy pickup for Republicans this year, given that they nominated a fairly inoffensive candidate. Does the abortion um, referendum have any part to play in that? Well, the abortion referendum already happened. Um, Kansas is more the fact that Kelly has been a phenomenal economic manager. The Republican governor prior to Laura Kelly, Sam Brownback, that's part of the reason she got elected in the first place was uh, his extreme unpopularity. Um, he just completely ruined the Kansas economy. Oh, right. Didn't he do that weird tax thing? It was like a yeah, tax holiday? Right. Yeah. yeah. Something like that. Um, so Laura yeah. Kelly essentially brought the Kansas economy back from the brink. She brought massive investment into the state, especially like high, highly educated um, investment, more, more like tech jobs and stuff. Kansas also did really, really well with COVID. They were able to both stay open and have a low death rate. And people appreciate her for that. And then one state south in Oklahoma... This is like the shocker one because Oklahoma is one of the deepest red states in the country. Trump won every county in 2020. And the, the Democrat has been like leading in multiple polls. The Democrat, let's apply here, was a Republican last year who was the um, state superintendent for, for schools 
who essentially changed her party registration to run for governor. But like, again, it's not politically convenient to become a Democrat in Oklahoma. So I I give her all the credit. I'm not going to sit here and and criticize her like I would a certain member of Congress from Massachusetts for changing their party for, for political convenience. You're talking to a Massachusetts right here. You're living in Massachusetts right now. Who is it? It's Jake Auchincloss. Yeah. Oh, right. The, yeah. My rep. He was yeah. a Republican until two minutes ago when it was politically convenient. Yeah, and he but, somehow won like a 10-person pileup race two years ago. You're not running unopposed. Yeah, so. it's, like, it's kind of like what happened in New York 10 this year. But yeah, so... Well, Dan Goldman is not. Yeah. But, he, he's not. Yeah. He wouldn't switch his party. He's just, mm-hmm. he's just less progressive than the other ones. Yeah. So the... Oklahoma is a really weird one because Kevin Stitt is also massively unpopular. He did really, really like bad with COVID where again, like for a Republican, he didn't strike the right balance at all between reopening and low death rate. Oklahoma has some of the worst schools in the country. So people like the fact that Hoff, Joy Hoffmeister, the Democrat, is the state superintendent. She's a good manager. And again, people don't really feel bad about voting for her as like, you know, this radical liberal extremist because she's literally like openly saying, yeah, I was a Republican until a year ago. I believe in fiscal conservatism. Like I'm just running because like the Oklahoma under Kevin Stitt is just not acceptable. And we'll see what happens. The polls could be completely wrong. It would not be the first time. It wouldn't even be close. Um so, yeah. And then I'm guessing the big one that you want me to talk about is the great state of Arizona. And no, I agree with you on that one. Katie Hobbs, she's destroying her chances. Like, even Joe Walsh is saying that she's literally, like, destroying her chances, not debating Carrie Lake. Well, right I'm not going to really agree with Joe Walsh on that. He agrees with you on it. Yes. But what I I think, honestly, it's just a, it's a combination, honestly, of the fact that Katie Hobbs is clearly a very weak candidate. Um, I honestly don't understand how she won in 2018, how she was swept into office as Secretary of State, considering she just doesn't have a whole lot of charisma. Her entire vibe is like, I'm not GQP. And like, honestly, that's just not a reason to vote for her. But Ruben Gayek have been a better uh, candidate. I think that my personal opinion is that Tom O'Halloran should have run. Because he has massive, um, he represents Flagstaff. Um, He has massive crossover appeal. He's won by huge margins in a 50-50 district year over Mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. But his district got completely reassembled after redistricting to the point where, like, he is running for re-election, but he's going to get crushed this year. So he might as well have just run for governor because he has good crossover appeal. And it clearly is a skilled campaigner. Is Fasham going to lose? The Republican nominee for Secretary of State in Arizona, is he going to lose? I have no idea. I mean, again, state races, state row offices are always way too granular to be able to to know this, especially when you're going from outside the state. Like, I can tell you pretty confidently that Brad Raffensperger in Georgia is going to win by a landslide. I can't tell you what's going to happen with pretty much any other state row office. If he does win, again... I will remind people that the court infrastructure is still very strong. Fincham, especially in Arizona, will not be nearly as powerful as people think he is. Arizona delegates a lot of power to the state legislature with regards to election results. The state legislature is much more moderate than the incoming governor and or... But Bauer is... I mean, he's gone now. The the Republican leader, the Speaker of the House, he's gone. It doesn't matter. Arizona's state house is made up of a lot of, like, suburban Phoenix. Let's say Shapiro loses. Let's say Shapiro loses Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania legislature, parts of that legislature were about to go on with Donald Trump until the media started knocking at the door. It's extremely unlikely that um, Josh Shapiro loses in Pennsylvania. It's very obvious that, especially in eastern Pennsylvania, which is highly educated, is very excited to split their ballots between Oz and Shapiro. 
I would say of all the like quote unquote competitive um, Biden twenty twenty state governorships, Shapiro is very very well positioned. Well, Michigan, Michigan, it's I would definitely say advantage Whitmer. I wouldn't be shocked if it goes the other way. Whitmer has done a very good job managing the Michigan economy, but at the same time, you know, Michigan is a very close state um, politically. So we'll just have to see what happens. The Republican just really doesn't have that much name recognition because they had an absolute disaster of a primary where, like, the person who was supposed to be the Republican nominee got disqualified because he didn't get enough ballot signatures. Oh, Ryan Ke- Wait, what was Ryan Kelly? Ryan Kelly is the insurrectionist, and he did not get disqualified. He just lost. Wait, where was he? He was running for he was running for governor, though. Yes, he did not get disqualified. He, he just lost. The person who was actually supposed to be the Republican nominee was the Detroit... Did he get arrested or something? Like, there was a whole thing at Tucker Carlson where you, where you basically... Yeah, he got arrested, but yeah. he didn't get... Um, he didn't get disqualified. The person who was supposed to be the Republican nominee who was going to really give Whitmer a run for her money was this guy named James Craig, who was the Detroit police officer who presided over a period of time where crime rapidly declined in Detroit. And I mean, it really wasn't because of him. It was because of Mike Duggan's economic policies, but he still would have given Whitmer a run for her money. Whatever we know about, you know, how the polls work and, you know, basic predictions about the makeup of the House and the Senate. Republicans are going to take the House. What happens? What do you think is going to, what, what do you think their top priorities are? What's going to happen to Biden's agenda? Is, is anything going to happen? I mean, quite simply, deadlock for two years. It's the same thing that, that happened under under Trump for between 2018 and 2020. My guess is that there will be some points of compromise, especially if there's, like, a national emergency. Republicans are threatening to, like, not raise the debt ceiling. My guess is that they're just going to use it to, like, milk Biden for some, like, Republican talking points, like some sort of tax cut. My guess is that they're going to try and, like, milk Biden for some sort of tax cut on the rich or something like that. Or um, try to completely destroy Social Security, as Norm Ornstein is pointing out. Like, he made a They whole... can't because Biden is in the White House. They can't pass legislation without the president. They got they they had massive uh, welfare reform under uh, Clinton. They got big cuts to. to I can assure you, Biden will not stand for that. Um, Republicans have been threatening to cut Social Security for years, and while I think Democrats should talk about it, it's not going to happen. I think that Republicans definitely are going to start uh, the whole investigation gambit that Democrats got going in 2018. Because I think that Democrats, oh, that's not the same. Democrats that is not the same. Democrats got a really, really they set a really, really bad precedent because they just went investigation crazy. An in absolute crook was in the White House along with his cronies. Like that is completely different from what their from what the Republicans are doing. This is that's, not that. This is not that's both what sides. Perceive as a Democrat if you exist in a oh right come on. Come on, you can't tell me that something like not, Ukraine scandal not is that, comparable not to that it's my orcas at the border. Like, I'm not saying that it's correct, but what I'm saying is for the individual who exists in a right-wing media bubble, Biden appears to be a very corrupt president. I'm not saying that it's the correct take. What I'm saying is that a lot of people feel that Democrats went too hard against Trump in 2018. And honestly, a lot of the investigations that Democrats like spearheaded were not warranted. Like, essentially, Democrats became their own worst enemy because when it came time to impeach Trump both times, it was so lost in the countless other investigations that they were leading that, honestly, Congress should not have been leading. That is a job for the judicial branch. It is a job of the judicial branch. Because Bill Barr was the head of the... And Matthew Whitaker, they were head of the Justice Department. Jeffrey Byrne wrote a whole book about how he was sidelined at the end. Like, this is not... This is an illusion that the judiciary is... 
clean and fair and unfortunately I am just saying it's what not. Republicans are going to do I'm not saying that I support it in any way I'm not saying you support it I'm saying yes. like, it, you're I'm under saying the assumption that, that the judiciary will hold and it's just is not they're true they're probably going to start up the investigation gambit they're going to go after Hunter Biden they're going to try and investigate what's happening at the border and honestly they probably will find something going on with Hunter Biden because well yeah I mean, he's just was about to uh, yeah. indict him anyway like yeah, the only stop because of the election I mean it's obvious that it's it's not going to get to Biden in the same way like they thought it would, like the investigations around Hillary did. Just like the way that Democrats thought the investigations of Trump were going to change a single vote. They're just not. So, I mean, it's it's literally just going to be the reverse of what we experienced between 2018 or 2019, I guess, and 2021, where it'll just be like investigations and deadlock, a few probably economic emergencies that get averted at the last second. And we'll see if Biden can avoid a, a recession, then maybe he could get reelected with the Democratic House in 2024 and we're going to end it there sam brunner thank you so much for coming on and you know let's see what happens november 8th thanks for having me and that concludes this episode of gen zero stock politics be sure to join our discord server follow us on instagram at gen zero stock politics and on twitter at gen zero stock poly with an i and add or email us to ask your burning questions thanks for joining us and we hope to see you next time